When we think backwards, when we think into the past, we can imagine what life was like in colonial America or at the height of the Roman Empire or even in the Israel of King David's day. We can go backwards in our minds and we can imagine life all along the timeline until we reach two major impasses. Two events changed the landscape on planet Earth so dramatically that all of our assumptions about life before it become a blur. The first event is the flood of Noah. Prior to the flood, it had never rained. The planet was shrouded with vapor and was watered by dew. There was no fear between man and the animals. I mean, the earth was a very, very different place. But you can go back even further. Before the fall of man, and to me this is mind-boggling, what would life be like in a perfect paradise? Work was no sweat. Childbirth was pain-free. I mean, this was before sin threw a wrench into the gears of God's creation. Well, tonight we're thinking in the opposite direction. We're going forward in our thoughts into the future. And again, our hypothesizing of what life would be like or will be like will be fairly accurate until we reach, again, two major impasses. First is the millennial kingdom of Christ. When King Jesus takes over and rules this planet and right all wrongs, when sin's damage has been totally repaired, what an amazing day that'll be. Can you imagine what life will be like under the reign of King Jesus in his kingdom? He'll turn the jungle into a garden. Last week, we tried to imagine what life will be like in the kingdom age. But there's another big impasse. What happens after the thousand-year reign of Christ? Well, in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, God takes John and us to the ultimate brink. He takes us to that point where time fades into eternity. When God creates a new heaven and a new earth. And at points, John just puts down his pen. He is in such awe of the wonders his eyes are seeing. Tonight, we too are going to get a glimpse of eternity. And I hope it captures our hearts as it did John's. Revelation chapter 21 begins. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The physical universe that we know will one day be no more. Some Bible teachers like to say God will uncreate what he created. He'll undo what he did. And the immediate question comes, then why did he create it in the first place? I mean, what did God get all, out of all of his creative efforts but great grief? Well, the answer to that question is you. God got you out of all those efforts. The whole point of what we call life is for God to populate eternity with people that he loves and who desires to have fellowship with him. Here in this verse, we're taught the non-eternity of matter. That matter had a beginning and it will have an end. That God created matter. And what he creates, he can uncreate or he can eliminate. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that one day all that can be shaken will be shaken. God wants to prove the vanity of the material stuff that human beings have lived for and idolized. Hebrews 12 closes, our God is a consuming fire. And that's how it all ends. Global warming does us in, believe it or not. 
But it's not the greenhouse gases. It's God who gases the place. We're told in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, that the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. In Revelation 20, when the great white throne appears, everything material flees away. Do you recall Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 24? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. God's word is forever, but not so with the heavens and the earth. They're on a timer. After Jesus reigns a thousand years, the clock expires. The current universe will go out in a blaze of God's glory. And Isaiah 65 verse 17 tells us what he'll create in its place. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And it's interesting here, the Hebrew word for create, it's the word bara. It's the same term used in Genesis 1 verse 1. At the original creation, it means to create out of nothing. In the future, God doesn't just refashion the elements of his first creation into something similar. No, he creates something better. I realize the trend today is to recycle. We need to recycle. We should do what we can to protect the environment. But you need to realize that God made earth a no-deposit, no-return planet. It won't be recycled. He will create a new heaven and a new earth. It may resemble the old earth in aspects, but it's a world that's qualitatively very, very different. And you would immediately notice the contrast in verse 1. Also, there was no more sea. Now today, the oceans are about 70% of the earth's surface. The ecosystem of the planet depends on the seas for water and for weather. But in the new earth, the sea won't be necessary. There was no more sea. You know, in Scripture, the sea is always sinister. It's a symbol for evil. In Revelation 13, we found that the beast rose out of the sea. In the new creation, this is a reminder that's no longer needed. It's been eliminated. Verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In John chapter 14, verse 2, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And we can assume that for the last 2,000 years, the carpenter has been constructing our heavenly digs. I believe what John sees coming like a bride, this new Jerusalem, is what we now call heaven. You know, scripturally speaking, there are three heavens. The first heaven is the blue sky, the atmosphere. The second heaven is the night sky, what we call outer space. But the third heaven is God's eternal throne. This is where our friends and loved ones who've died knowing Jesus now reside. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes of his experience when he was caught up to the third heaven. And now John sees the third heaven come to earth. He calls it the New Jerusalem. It's God's capital. Apparently, God will reign from the holy city. And when John sees this city coming down from above, it reminds him of a bride on her wedding day, a bride coming to Jesus. She's decked out in splendor. She's walking the aisle to her husband. No doubt she is the object of his desires. 
You know, this world is an awe-inspiring place. There are vistas around the globe that are so gorgeous, they take your breath away. But Jesus created this earth in six days. Imagine what he'll come up with with 2,000 years to work on it. You know, whenever I officiate a wedding, I tell the groom, I kind of whisper to the groom, hey, scoot over a little bit. Because I want him to kind of get out into the aisle so that he doesn't miss his bride coming down the center aisle. For she will never look as pretty as she does on her wedding day. I've met some ugly women. But I've never met an ugly bride. It's amazing. I doubt if there's ever been a groom disappointed at the sight of his bride. All brides are beautiful somehow. And this will be our reaction to heaven. It'll dwarf all our expectations. Don't think you'll ever get homesick for this earth. Heaven is infinitely greater than the here and now. A voice sounds out in verse 3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. You've heard of the streets of gold and the pearly gates, but heaven's chief attraction is God. Understand, it's Jesus that makes heaven so heavenly. And here the quality of life we find in heaven now and in the new Jerusalem then, it's described for us, verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Oh, for that day. In the kingdom, death will be rare, but still existent. Here, death is finally abolished. No more undertakers in the new heaven and new earth. No more grave diggers. There'll be no more cemeteries in the new earth. Death will be dead. There's a gravestone in Richmond, Virginia, under which the body of Margaret Daniels is buried. The tombstone reads, she always said her feet were killing her, but nobody believed her. (laughs) I thought that was funny. Sin created a fallen world that makes us vulnerable to sickness and pain and ultimately death. But in Revelation 21, sin is no more. Now sin's symptoms can be treated. Grief goes. Tears dry up. Psalm 30 verse 5 proves true. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And here the morning breaks. You know, when a human comes into this world, what's the first sound he or she makes? Wah! It's a cry. And to a degree, we keep crying throughout the sorrows of our lives. Life is one big cry in this fallen world. But one day, Jesus will dry all our tears. He'll put an end to death and sorrow. Hey, there's no crying in heaven. And then he he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And this Greek word translated new, it's new not in the sense of time, but in the sense of kind or quality. You know, one of life's disappointments is its diminishing returns. I mean, things lose their luster. Have you noticed that things that excite you one day grow mundane down the road? Have you noticed that? I mean, did you know some Hawaiians move? I've had people tell me, I'm from Hawaii. 
And I look at them and I scrunch my brow and I say, why in the world did you ever move? Did you get tired of Hawaii? And they did, believe it or not. Bored with paradise? I mean, how fickle can people be? But even after a million years in eternity, there'll be nothing boring about heaven. It'll never lose its newness. And he said to me, write. You see, apparently John had stopped writing. He was so in awe of these wonders that he's becoming privy to that he had laid down his pen. He'd forgotten the task at hand. He said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. It's the words of Jesus on the cross, isn't it? It is finished. The heavy lifting came at Calvary. Now all that was paid for is acquired in the new heaven and in the new earth. And then Jesus continues. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha is the A or the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the Z, the last letter. All of life begins and ends with Jesus. He's not just the reason for one season. He's what life is all about. And Jesus promises, I will give of the fountain of of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Our Lord Jesus gives refreshment. And not stingily, not reluctantly. Oh, bring your part soul to Jesus and just watch him work. He is the great thirst quencher. And then verse 7 continues, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God. He shall be my son. And how do you overcome? Well, John told us earlier in 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, John wrote, Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? How do you overcome? You believe in Jesus. And yet those who don't overcome, who succumb to sin and doubt and compromise and don't believe in Jesus, they get left out of this wonderful city. In verse 8, John begins to list Those you'll find in the lake of fire, he says, but the cowardly. And notice here, cowardice. Notice it's not a weakness. We like to think of it as a weakness, but it's not. Cowardice is a sin. There is no excuse for cowardice when Jesus is willing to make us overcomers. That's why you should never be a fence straddler. Remember, the only thing you find in the middle of the road are dead skunks and yellow streaks. We need to have a courageous faith. Jesus will make us overcomers if we trust in him. He says, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable. Abominable. It means act repulsive to God. I did a little research on this, and I made a list of all that the law of Moses called an abomination. Regarding God's distinctions between clean and un, or disregarding his distinctions between, between clean and unclean was considered an abomination. Giving God an offering from ill-gotten gain was referred to as abominable. Leviticus 18 verse 22 and 20 verse 13 describe homosexual practices as an abomination to God. Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 puts cross-dressing in the same category. Idolatry was considered an abomination, as was offering to God a blemished sacrifice, something less than your best. This too was considered an abomination. 
Which means if you've ever been guilty of giving God the leftovers of your time and your money, I have. Beware of pointing your fingers at other forms of abominable. In other words, make sure you take care of your abominable before you start worrying about somebody else's abominable, okay? The list goes on. Murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers. The Greek word here is pharmakias, from which we get our word pharmacy. It involves the use of illicit drugs. As are idolaters and all liars. God loves the truth. Why would he want to spend eternity with a habitual liar? No wonder he leaves them out of the kingdom. Everyone on this list, we're told, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Actually, the residents of the lake of fire sound a lot like the past of some of those people in this room here tonight, doesn't it? How many of us fit into some of those categories? Probably all of us. Realize there will be folks in heaven who lied and did drugs and were homosexuals and acted cowardly and slept around and were abominable in their own way. But those folks in heaven repented. And that's the difference. They repented. They wanted to live differently. Not perfectly, but certainly differently. And they repented. They turned from their sin to follow Jesus. Rather than continue to pursue their own way, their goal was God's ideal. Those who get excluded from heaven and assigned to the lake of fire are the unrepentant. They're the folks who didn't care about God and God's ways and were never willing to change. Verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. This is such a spectacular sight. An angel repositions John on a high mountain to give him a panoramic view. The angel speaks of heaven as a beautiful bride. Realize, heaven is a great city. It's a hustling, bustling city. You know, here on earth, we sometimes begrudge city life, don't we? I mean, cities are seen as an incubator for all that's bad in the world. Crime and poverty and congestion and noise and pollution. We romanticize moving out into the more pristine countryside. But apparently, God likes the city. In the end, we'll all live in this city. Cities bring people together. Cities spawn culture and creativity. New ideas bubble up from within the city. There's excitement in the city streets. And this is what heaven will be like, an exciting city. Don't think of heaven as a bank of puffy cumulus clouds. No, for all eternity we'll live in a, the hustle and the bustle of a city that never sleeps. You and I weren't created for the isolation of the countryside. God designed us for the city, for the buzz of city life. As we'll see, there are aspects of the new Jerusalem that are more like a garden Heaven apparently is a city with a lot of green space, but it's a city nonetheless. It's a garden in the midst. There's a garden in the midst of this city. 
Well, John sees this holy city descending out of heaven. What happens to it after it descends, he doesn't say. And this is what brings questions to our minds. Does it just sit and kind of hover between heaven and earth, this new Jerusalem? Does it become a celestial satellite of the new earth? Does it lock into a parallel orbit with this new earth? Does the new earth even have an orbit? We know this earth doesn't revolve around the sun, for in verse 23 we're told that this city has no sun, that the Lamb is its light. In eternity, everything will revolve around Jesus, not the sun. One of the certainties that we glean from this description is the beauty and the color of the city. Notice verse 11. For her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city will be like a gemstone. Imagine a huge glimmering diamond floating down out of the heavens. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. Like ancient cities, heaven has a wall with gates and foundations. In verse 13, on the gates, there were names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. I think it's fitting that the 12 gates bear the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The Hebrews were the gate through which the world entered into God's family. All of God's covenants were first offered to Israel. Verse 14, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. At his first coming, Jesus chose 12 apostles. Other apostles came later. There may even be apostles today. You could make a case for that. But the original 12 who walked with Jesus had a special authority. They are in a unique category. And here's proof. Their names will adorn the 12 foundations of the new Jerusalem. One footnote. There are 12 foundations. Thus, there are 12 apostles. Obviously, somebody replaced Judas Iscariot. Was it Matthias? Perhaps it was the apostle Paul. One day we'll find out. We'll read that foundation. Look at that. I knew it was him all along. Verse 15. And he who taught with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city's laid out, at, it go, he goes on. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. 12,000 furlongs. This is the equivalent of about 1,500 miles. Imagine a city with base dimensions 1,500 square miles. This is a huge city. If the upper right-hand corner was Boston, then the other three corners would land in Miami, Phoenix, and Calgary, Canada. The New Jerusalem will cover three-quarters of the United States, roughly about two and a quarter million square miles. The most mind-boggling dimension, though, of the New Jerusalem is the height of the city. It's also 1,500 miles high. Realize that today, the Earth's atmosphere extends only 600 miles. That means if the New Jerusalem sat on the old Earth, it would extend 900 miles into outer space. More of it would be above the atmosphere than below the atmosphere. The size of the Lamb City is a tad smaller than the moon. 
Imagine, too, a city with three-dimensional living space. This is 3D living. Its inhabitants occupy not only the ground floor or the base, but the entire structure. That would increase the living space to about 3 billion square miles, plenty of room for all the redeemed. We know the city's dimensions. What we don't know is its shape. Some Bible teachers believe that the New Jerusalem is in the shape of a dome or maybe in the shape of a sphere. Other believe, others believe that it's in the shape of a cube. You remember the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was a cube. It was 15 by 15 by 15 feet high. A more provocative suggestion is that it has a pyramid shape. You know, ancient pyramids were all associated with death and the afterlife. And it could be that the idea of a pyramid was a heavenly memory left over in the mind of fallen man. We don't know what shape the New Jerusalem uh, will be in, but it will be quite large. Verse 17, and then he measured its wall, 144 cubits. Now at 18 inches per cubit, that's 216 feet. He says, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. Now, whether this is 216 feet thick or 216 feet high, it's unclear. The construction of its wall was of jasper. The word means speckled stone. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. I mean, the gold is so pure, it's transparent. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. And note the colors I've got a chart for you. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire, which is a blue. The third, chalcedony, or an aqua. The fourth, emerald, a bright green. The fifth, sardonyx, a brownish red. The sixth, sardius, a deep blood red. The seventh, chrysolite, or a greenish yellow. The eighth, beryl, or yellow. The ninth, topaz, a reddish gold. The tenth, chrysoprase, which was an apple green. The eleventh, jacinth, which was a burnt orange. And then the twelfth, the amethyst or purple. I believe these stones are the same twelve stones that appear in the breastplate of the high priest. And for all eternity, these stones will remind us of Jesus' priestly ministry. That he stood in our place, that he interceded for us. One thing is sure, this heavenly city will be a kaleidoscope of sparkle and color and glitter. It'll stimulate our senses when we see it. And then verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. The pearl is the only gem that's not a mineral. It starts out as a little speck of sand in the belly of an oyster. It begins as an irritation. Secretions from the oyster crystallize around the speck of sand, and the process forms a beautiful pearl. And this makes it fitting that the entryway into the New Jerusalem are pearls. For it's through the sufferings of Jesus that God has made a way for us to be forgiven. And it's through life's irritations that God matures our faith. How fitting it is that the gates of the New Jerusalem are pearls. For all eternity, each time we pass through the pearly gates, we'll be thankful to God for the irritations and for the sufferings. And we're told that the street and the street of the city. Notice it's not streets plural. It's street singular. 
For unlike other cities, there's not a maze of arteries in the New Jerusalem. No spaghetti junction in the New Jerusalem. You see, there's only one way to God. And there's only one street in the New Jerusalem. And John tells us that it's made of pure gold like transparent glass. Apparently a supernatural mineral that we don't even know about yet. On earth, gold is highly valued. But in heaven, they use it as asphalt. Imagine what they call treasure in heaven. And then verse 22. But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And this is so odd. For in the former Jerusalem, the Jewish temple was the city's chief attraction. It towered over the city's skyline. I mean, the temple was the one place on earth where you were sure to meet God. You worshiped. You offered sacrifices. You took your vows. You celebrated the feast days. You performed rituals all in the Jewish temple. It was the epitome of religion. And this is exactly why it no longer exists in the New Jerusalem. For God will be done with religion. The temple's absent means that God has put an end to religion. God tolerated Jewish religion for a time to teach us certain lessons. But people focused on the law rather than on love. They got fixated on the rules rather than the ruler. God desires a love relationship with his people, not religious obligation. This is why there's no temple in the New Jerusalem. In the end, all that will really matter is the Lord and the Lamb. And then verse 23 tells us, The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The radiance, the brilliance of Jesus will give off a light and a warmth, all that we need. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. And it will all get laid at Jesus' feet. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. You know, nighttime and darkness are also symbols for sin. It's rare, it's much rarer for a crime to be committed in the daylight than it is in the dark. Why? For evil loves the cover of darkness. But neither night nor dark exist in the new Jerusalem. And this is good news for kids. No bedtime anymore. You'll never have to go to bed. Apparently, we'll have bodies that won't require sleep. And then verse 26 And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be no means, by no means, enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. I mean, this eternal city will remain unsoiled by sin. All its citizens will have been there, done that. They'll be done with sin. No more. The new Jerusalem will be inhabited by only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so, is your name written? In the Lamb's book of life, I hope it is. In Revelation 22, John takes us through the gates of this city. Inside the walls, and guess what we find? We find a garden. A garden. Think of these first few verses as a virtual tour of heaven. Verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's a river, there's a throne, there's a street, and there's a tree. Like all cities, heaven has a main street. But in heaven, main street is its only street. Here John takes us cruising down the main drag of the New Jerusalem. Picture a street of gold that leads to the throne. The street is wide. And rather than a center line or a median or turn lanes, there's a river running down the center of this street. Several years ago, I spoke at a church in San Antonio, Texas. And the church put Kathy and I up at the river walk. There's a river that runs through the downtown section of the city. And there's a sidewalk on either side of the river. Trust me, heaven's going to be a lot nicer than San Antonio, Texas, okay? But it does give you kind of the idea. Main Street in heaven will be like a, a river walk. You know, throughout the Bible, God is seen as a river flowing through our lives. Psalm 1 says that the blessed man is like a tree planted by the river. In Psalm 46, God is the river that makes glad the city of God. In John 7, Jesus said, from a believer's heart will spring rivers of living water. I'm sure in heaven we'll drink from this river of life. We'll walk along its banks. Jesus will be to us a river, a source of pure and clean and endless refreshment and health. And understand where this river of life originates. It flows out from the throne of God and of the Lamb. You know, from outside, walking into heaven, we've gone past the wall, we've gone through the gate, we've walked down the street, we've walked by the river, but from the inside of heaven, looking outward, everything begins at the throne of the Lamb. For all eternity, we'll be reminded that all that's good flows to us, not from us, but flows to us from God. It flows to us from the Lamb. This is how all where all goodness originates, not in us, but from God to us. And on either side of this river of life, John sees a tree. Now, perhaps it's one tree that grows on both banks of the river and the water runs through the tree trunk. The original language could indicate multiple trees. Maybe it's a row of trees growing on either bank. We're not sure. But Main Street in heaven affords us a welcome sight. You remember Adam and Eve were booted from the Garden of Eden because God barred them from the tree of life. He even dispatched an angel armed to guard the tree. Now in heaven, mankind is given access to that tree again, the tree of life. You see, if the first couple had eaten of the tree of life in their fallen state, they would have lived forever in sin. But now that we're in heaven, now that we've been fully redeemed, we're given access again to the tree of life. It's restored. Once again, we can come and we can munch its fruits. You remember when Jesus referred to heaven, he called it a paradise. He told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. That word paradise is a Persian word. It referred to an oriental oasis, a lush, beautiful, exotic, protected garden. This is why when you think of heaven, you should think of Hawaii or Fiji or Tahiti, 
The human story should be titled From Paradise Lost to Paradise Regained. The original garden was the Eden. It was called Eden, which means delights. This was God's original intention for us. Eternal delight. But this too is our ultimate destination. For we are returning to that paradise. To that garden with the river of life running through it. And then notice a couple of other details here from verses 1 and 2. Notice this tree of life bears 12 fruits. One tree yields 12 fruits. Bananas and apples and mangoes. 12 different fruits. Apparently, there's incredible variety in heaven and very few limitations. Heaven will be unbridled creativity. Notice, too, each tree yielding its fruit every month. Now, is this one tree producing 12 fruits? Or one tree yielding a different fruit each month? Or is it 12 different trees yielding their fruit? Again, we're not real sure. But notice here something that fascinates me. Notice the inclusion of time. Each tree yielding its fruit every month. Here's a mention of months. This is a lunar measurement in eternity. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 23, we just read that there's no moon. Yet there's months. You see, even in eternity, we won't completely escape time. Today, time rules our lives. We're all on the clock, aren't we? We have deadlines. We have limited time. But in heaven, there'll be time. We just won't be a slave to time. In heaven, we won't waste time or run out of time. There'll be plenty of time, always. It's said of heaven, we'll live with time, but we'll no longer be under its pressure. And notice in heaven, we'll eat. I like this. I mean, why else is there fruit? Surely we'll... We'll, if we want to eat, we'll be able to eat the fruit. Now, there's no hunger in heaven. But we don't always eat out of hunger, do we? We eat for enjoyment. We eat for fellowship. We eat for relaxation. And if you want to eat in heaven, well, rest assured you can. You can eat all you want. I'm sure angel's food cake is on the menu. <laughs> What's heaven without angel's food cake? As well as divinity. That would work in heaven. What about seventh, seventh heaven bars? That'll probably be there. Now, if you like devil's food cake, you better get all that you want right now. I'll bet you, though, every entree in heaven on heaven's menu is calorie free. I'll bet. Imagine all you can eat all of the time and you won't gain an inch. That's heaven. And I'm not being flippant here. Our text gives us reasons to believe that everything in heaven is Weight Watchers approved. Notice, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It's not that they cure sickness, for there's no illness in heaven. The word healing can also mean health producing or health promoting. Thus, all the fruits, all the foods in heaven are health foods. And then verse 3 answers the question often asked, what will we do in heaven? And here's where misinformation abounds. People think all we'll do is take harp lessons or rake clouds or spend 24-7 singing. Pastor saying, I don't like to sing. Don't worry. Notice verse 3. 
And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Did you know you're going to work in heaven? There's going to be work in heaven. You and I are going to serve the Lord in heaven. Mankind was created by God for meaningful service. Whenever you complete a task and walk away with the satisfaction of a job well done, realize that's a gift from God to you. It's how he made you. And it's a foretaste of one of the joys we'll experience in heaven. You know, today we labor under the curse. There's thorns and thistles all around us. Adam was made from the dust of the ground. And then he was told to go back and work that same dust. But as he did, he left something of himself in his work. In other words, he never got out of his labor all that he put into it. He worked himself to death. That was the plan. That was the curse. And this is now the plight of all men. We work by the sweat of our brow. Today, under the curse, we all labor. And that labor is hard labor. We're literally working ourselves to death. Boy, labor in a fallen world is a grind. It's a curse. And it's tough to stay motivated, isn't it? Boredom becomes a problem. Ultimately, you realize that every job is a dead-end job. But imagine work without the curse. Work that's no sweat. Every day ends with this tremendous sense of satisfaction. Imagine that. In heaven, you can't wait to get back to work and clock into the, into the job. I mean, no one in heaven ever asks for vacation. They don't. It's incredible. Everybody enjoys and loves their work. They're serving God. And then here in verse 4, this is the creme de la creme. Here's the best that heaven has to offer. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Ah, this is the pinnacle of heaven's delights and man's ambition. Nothing tantalizes and raises expectations higher than this promise. That one day, you and I and all redeemed humans will look into the face of God. Don't you long for that day? I hope you do. Nothing testifies to the power of the gospel. Nothing confirms the cleansing effects of the blood of Jesus more than, the, than this outcome that the likes of us will see the face of God. And just as amazing, his name shall be on their foreheads. Now, I'm not really into tats. I got my Kathy tattoo and got my bulldog tattoo. But other than that, I'm not really into tattoos. But here's one tattoo I won't mind getting. We'll visit New Jerusalem, Inc. Heaven has a tattoo parlor. Hey, recall the beast identifies the rebels who pledge allegiance to him by what? By putting a mark on their foreheads. Well, God has a mark of his own. He's going to mark his people the same way. He isn't ashamed of his followers. Jesus isn't ashamed of you. In fact, God will put his name on your forehead. He brands us as his own. It's the one tattoo I won't mind being permanent. It'll mark us for all eternity. And then verse 5. There shall be no night there. 
They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. We'll not only serve God in eternity, but we'll reign with Jesus. You know, in chapter 20, we mentioned that we would rule over the earth in the kingdom age. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, Paul expands on our duties further. He asks, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Did you know one day you'll judge angels? Could it be that in the new heaven and in the new earth will even reign over the angels? Well, then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. In the first verse of Revelation chapter 1, the same phrase was also used, must shortly take place. We assume that this speaks of a length of time, but that's not its meaning. It's more about a succession of, or what takes place after. It literally means, here's what's next. And all that John has seen is what's next on God's divine agenda. You know, often people read the book of Revelation focused on when. When all this is going to happen. When is the end? But the real theme of this book is who. For when the end comes, it's Jesus in all his glory. You see, what's next? What's next? What should we be looking for? And the answer is the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus is what's next for all of us. And that's why Jesus cries out in verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. The glory of Jesus is what's next. John continues, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And this is true of all the Bible. When you purchase an automobile, you can save yourself a lot of hassle by reading the owner's manual, can you not? But that's what you do when you follow God's word. For the Bible is the creator's manufacturer's manual. And you're bound to be blessed when you follow the owner's manual. Verse 8. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Boy, he made the same mistake back in chapter 19, remember? Apparently, all this glory made him giddy again. He stopped thinking. God alone deserves to be worshipped, not some angel. And the angel corrects John, does it immediately. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. The angel says, don't worship me. I'm just a servant of God. You worship God. But this is a sober warning to us. For understand this. John has just seen heaven. He has seen glory that has blown his mind, that has caused him to put down his pen in awe of the things he's seen. And yet notice how quickly the revelator turns into an idolater. Happens just like that. You see, apparently a person's experiences don't necessarily validate their orthodoxy or their doctrine. Just because you see stuff doesn't mean that your teaching can be trusted. Just because somebody comes along and tells you all these credible spiritual things that they've seen doesn't mean that they're accurately interpreting the Word of God or accurately interpreting what they've seen. Always make sure you check out what they say with what God has said. 
It's amazing to me how quickly John goes from the revelator to an idolater. Boom, just like that. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Pay attention to verse 11. It's an ominous warning. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And here's what this means. Once a person passes from time into eternity, that person forfeits any possibility for change. In Dante's famous novel, The Inferno, he inscribes the following words over the gates of hell. Those who enter here abandon all hope. Understand, if you enter into eternity filthy, you're going to be filthy forever. If you enter into eternity holy, you'll be holy forever. In Tombstone, Arizona, in the Boot Hill Cemetery, there's a gravestone that reads, Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44, no less, no more. And that can be said of everybody who checks out of this world. What you were on earth, you'll be for all eternity, no less, no more. If you're unjust in this life, you'll be unjust still. If you're righteous and holy in this life, you'll be righteous and holy still. If you walked with Jesus in the here and now, you'll walk with him forever. If you didn't, then you won't. Forever. In verse 12, Jesus speaks, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. To give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Over the millenniums, mankind has had considerable say, but in the end, it's God who gets the last word. And his last word is Jesus. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Without Jesus, there is no hope. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are the dogs, not the D-A-W, not the dogs, the bulldogs, but the dogs. This was a slang term for somebody who was especially brutal and animalistic and immoral. You know, a base person was a dog. But there are other people outside the New Jerusalem, sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. All these people will be outside the New Jerusalem. Now understand the difference between the American dream and the Bible's heaven. This is very important. You see, America's vision is inclusive. We are the wide gate. We are the broad road. We are no child left behind. We are for equality regardless of creed or faith. Not so in heaven. Heaven is a narrow gate. It's the narrow road. Heaven is a place for those who did life God's way. And those who didn't, they end up on the outside looking in. Faith matters. Those who believe in Jesus are allowed into the new Jerusalem. Those who didn't remain on the outside. Verse 16 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The root and the offspring of David refers to his birthright, his first coming. The morning star is the last star seen before the dawning of a new day. It speaks of the rapture, his coming for the church. He says, and the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. I love this chorus of comes. Hey, salvation is free. It's paid for by Jesus. But you have to come. God won't chase you down. You have to come. And in order to come, you have to step over whatever's holding you back. He says, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. But you have to believe enough to take and to desire and to drink. Since John was the last of the 12 apostles alive at the time of the revelation, he knew the canon of Scripture concluded with him. He was the last authorized to write sacred Scripture, and thus he attaches a warning to not only the book of Revelation, but I believe the whole Bible. Verse 18, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. I mean, who is man to cut and paste God's word? The Bible needs no edits. It is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and to faith. Woe to the person who tampers with the Bible. Plagues get added to the adders. The names of subtractors get subtracted from the book of life. Beware messing with God's word. And then verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Three times now we've been warned. Three times he said that we need to get ready. And John is prepared. He says, Even so, come Lord Jesus. And then he closes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And it is God's grace that awaits you and me. Remember, when Jesus turned the water into wine, remember the guests marveled that the host had saved the best wine for last. Do you remember that? And understand, this always happens with Jesus. Jesus always saves the best for last. And this is the big lesson that Revelation teaches us. We begin in a garden and we end in a garden. So, why all the crime? Why all the war, the pain, the death in between? I mean, was it just to get us back to square one? And the answer to that is no. Understand this. God's goal for us isn't innocence, but redemption. You see, Adam and Eve were innocent. They knew no sin. But neither did they experience the depths of God's forgiveness and the joy of his freedom and the severity of his justice and the righteousness of his judgments and thus the extravagance of his grace. You see, they were innocent. They were ignorant of the extent of God's love. But not the man in the final garden. Oh no, innocent we won't be. We will have been through the fire. 
the pain of sin and death. We will know what it's like to be lost and alone. And now we will appreciate that we've been found. We will glory in the blood of Jesus Christ and in the redemption that comes through his name. We will know that God loves us and we will know how much. And we will sing the song with all the redeemed. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. For this is God's goal for you and me. Not innocence, but redemption. And redemption is far greater than innocence. You see, Jesus always saves the best for last. And there we have the Bible.